traveled throughout America. Beginning in 1769, he lived on a New York farm for 11 years. During that time, he wrote his famous commentary on the American character, entitled Letters from an American Farmer. Krevker asked, What then is the American, this new man? He is either a European or the descendant of a European. Hence, that strange mixture of blood which you will find in no other country. I could point out to you a family whose grandfather was an Englishman, whose wife was Dutch, whose son married a Frenchwoman, and whose present four sons have now four wives of different nations. Here, individuals of all nations are melted into a new race of men, whose labors and posterity will one day cause great changes in the world. Here, the rewards of his industry follow with equal steps the progress of his labor. His labor is founded on the basis of nature, self-interest. Can it want a stronger allurement? The American is a new man who acts upon new principles. He must therefore entertain new ideas and form new opinions. This is an American. America, Krevker believed, contrasted sharply with the aristocratic and class-ridden countries of Europe. America is not composed, as in Europe, of great lords who possess everything and of a herd of people who have nothing. Here are no aristocratical families, no courts, no kings, no bishops, no ecclesiastical dominion. We are a people of cultivators, scattered over an immense territory, communicating with each other by means of good roads and navigable rivers, united by the silken bands of mild government, all respecting the laws without dreading their power because they are equitable. We are all animated with the spirit of an industry which is unfettered and unrestrained because each person works for himself. A traveler views not the hostile castle and the haughty mansion contrasted with the clay-built hut and miserable cabin where cattle and men help to keep each other warm and dwell in meanness, smoke, and indigence. We have no princes for whom we toil, starve, and bleed. Here man is free as he ought to be. Krevka penned these lines in the 1770s, when Britain laid claim to 30 colonies in the New World, including 12 in the West Indies. Of these 30 colonies, 13 declared independence in 1776, and they fought an eight-year war to secure that independence. These 13 colonies, bounded by New Hampshire on the north and Georgia on the south, contained around 2.5 million people. Their settlements were scattered over an area 1,200 miles long and 200 miles wide. The vast majority of Americans were farmers. Colonial cities, by modern standards, were tiny. Philadelphia, America's largest city, had a population of around 30,000, the number of people who might show up for a modern ball game. Next was New York with 20,000, followed by Boston with 15,000, Charleston with 14,000, Newport with 9,100, and Baltimore with 5,900. 18th-century Americans, as Krevker noted, came from various European stocks, including English, German, Scotch, Irish, Swiss, Dutch, and French. 
But some 400,000 Americans, 17% of the population, did not come from Europe at all, nor did they come to America willingly. These were the Negro slaves. These were the glaring and tragic exception to Kravka's remark, here man is free as he ought to be. Slavery, as many Americans realized, conflicted with the principles of the American Revolution. The Reverend Nathaniel Niles declared, God gave us liberty, and we have enslaved our fellow men. May we not fear that the law of retaliation is about to be executed on us? What can we object against it? What excuse can we make for our conduct? What reason can we urge why our oppression shall not be repaid in kind? Should the Africans see God Almighty subjecting us to all the evils we have brought on them, and should they cry to us, O daughter of America who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. How could we object? How could we resent it? Would we enjoy liberty? Then we must grant it to others. For shame! Let us either cease to enslave our fellow men, or else let us cease to complain on those that would enslave us. Let us either wash our hands from blood, or never hope to escape the avenger. Except for slaves, Americans enjoyed a liberty unknown in Europe. Taxes in the colonies were extremely low, indeed virtually non-existent. The rate of taxation in Britain, for example, was 26 times greater than in America. As the distinguished historian Robert Palmer has said, one suspects that no taxation without representation meant no taxation with representation either. Americans were among the freest people on earth. Why, then, did they undertake a revolution? This question was asked by opponents of American independence. Ambrose Searle, a British officer stationed in America during the war, simply could not believe that Americans rebelled because of oppression. They proclaim themselves several and separate states, and proceed so far as to treat Great Britain and the King as their natural, cruel, and unrelenting enemies. An influenza more wonderful, and at the same time more general than that of the witchcraft in the province of Massachusetts Bay in the last century. The annals of no country can produce an instance of so virulent a rebellion, of such implacable madness and fury originating from such trivial causes as those alleged by these unhappy people. This was not just a British perspective. Peter Oliver, a native of Massachusetts and chief justice of its superior court, was one of many Americans who sided with Britain during the war. In past ages, Oliver argued, revolutions had been caused by severe oppression, but America was not afflicted with this. For a colony which had been nursed in its infancy with the most tender care and affection, which had been indulged with every gratification that the most forward child could wish for, which had been repeatedly saved from impending destruction, sometimes by an aid unsought, at other times by assistance granted to them from their own repeated humble supplications, for such colonies to plunge into an unnatural rebellion, 
This surely, to an attentive mind, must strike with some degree of astonishment. In Oliver's opinion, the revolution was instigated by radical agitators who duped the common people with propaganda. Why is the sudden transition made from obedience to rebellion but to gratify the pride, ambition, and resentment of a few abandoned demagogues who were lost to all sense of shame and of humanity? The generality of the people were not of this stamp, but they were weak and unversed in the arts of deception. Modern Americans sometimes see their revolutionary forefathers through rose-colored spectacles as near deities who so overflowed with heroic virtues that they had no room left for flaws. Eighteenth-century Americans, however, were more realistic. Those who actually lived through the trauma and devastation of an eight-year war knew that if war brings out the best in men, it also brings out the worst. The revolutionary Charles Thompson knew that mere mortals fought for independence and that American victory owed a good deal to luck, or as Thompson put it, to providence. When Thompson was asked if he would write a history of the revolution, he replied, No, I ought not, for I should contradict all the histories of the great events of the revolution and show by my account of men, motives, and measures that we are wholly indebted to the agency of providence for its successful issue. Let the world admire the supposed wisdom and valor of our great men. Perhaps they may adopt the qualities that have been ascribed to them, and thus good may be done. I shall not undeceive future generations. The Philadelphia physician Benjamin Rush, an early proponent of independence, gave a realistic account of the motives that led some Americans to take up arms against Britain. The word Whig in his account refers to those who...